Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Autism News Network podcast. My name is Dr. Frampton Gwinnett, and I am a psychiatrist at the Medical University of South Carolina, and I am here with Dr. Amanda Eblen, uh, one of our uh, Autism News Network uh, directors, and uh, welcome, Dr. Eblen. Hi, how are you? I'm good. And so tell us about your role at the Medical University of South Carolina. Yeah, so I'm one of the psychiatric nurse practitioners at MUSC. So I'm a nurse practitioner with a specialization in psychiatry. Awesome. Yeah, yeah and you've uh, joined us in July. And um, honestly, since you started, it's really been a great help to the news network because you and I run the weekly autism news network groups, don't mm-hmm. we? We do. Yeah, it's been pretty fun. Um, yeah. I was going to get to the uh, topic that we were supposed to discuss, which is vaccines and autism. But maybe to start out, you can just tell me a little bit about um, your observations of being involved with the news network. Like, what is it about working with this group of, of patients that's so exciting and rewarding? Uh, what I really enjoy about working with the group of patients is um, they're able to really practice their social skills during group every week, um, such as interviewing other people, practicing um, coming up with questions, having to plan things out. So it's really been amazing to watch their progress um, each week. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that you've added um, to our program is, is social skills Um and tell us about the social skills that, that you're helping us emphasize. So we're trying to emphasize weekly responsibilities with the patients and giving them individual roles to help them with um, executive functioning skills like planning, yeah. organizing, things like that. So each patient has their own role. So we have a social media coordinator. We have a... Shout out to DQ. <laughs> Editor-in-chief of our newsletter. We have a couple of film editors. So... Um, been going great and for our audience these are all participants who have autism yeah and so they are generating the content about autism yeah from their viewpoint yeah which is really cool mm-hmm. um and so you mentioned that uh we have different roles and i know you were instrumental in getting the newsletter out and we talked about executive skills because it's one thing to have an idea for a newsletter and to maybe scribble a little something down but can you take us through the the steps of Uh, making sure that that's happened and responsibilities and accountability? Yeah, sure. So um, one of our patients, she's our editor-in-chief of our newsletter. Mm -hmm. So she's really helped us start the newsletter up. So she wrote up the newsletter for us, gave it to you and I to look at and edit, and we were able to print it with the university press and give it out to um, patients and their family members and staff members. So it's been great. Yeah, and it's been a lot of back and forth. Like when you come up with even something like a a, a two-page newsletter there's a lot of revisions right mm-hmm. a lot of feedback and mm-hmm. it was really a team effort mm-hmm. yeah so that was a great I think result and um, when's the next newsletter coming out that's a good question I think our editor-in-chief is working on that for okay. us right now okay. this week awesome um, and we are working on a big goal in our groups um, in terms of devices mm-hmm. and accountability can you tell the audience about that yeah sure so the electronic media is really popular with the younger generation and we have a lot of people that are in their early to mid 20s that are in our group and sometimes the cell phones or being on the computer can be a distraction to other Mm -hmm. members of the team Um, so we've been trying to work on cutting back on Right. Cell phone use, electronic use during the groups. During the groups yeah. to kind of help improve social skills. Sometimes it takes away from the group if yeah. they're on their cell phone or on their laptop, um, and they might not realize that. And sometimes it can come across as they're not engaged in the session yeah. when 
they might totally be engaged with the session, might be listening. Yeah. Um, that's part of social skills development, too. Exactly. Yeah, so that's been a nice addition, and we're seeing reductions in the use of devices during group. If you can imagine a group of about 10 or 12 <laughs> people in a, in a room trying to have a meeting and discuss various projects, mm-hmm. and about half of them are on devices, it can be challenging, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I personally had a hard time kind of setting limits, and you've really helped, I think, reinforce that point. And um, they're responding to the challenge, aren't mm-hmm. they? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's really great. Um, Okay, well, we were going to go on to um, a very, I think, shouldn't be controversial topic, but it it still is. It's autism (laughs) and vaccines. And, um, you know, you did a little bit of research on this topic, and um, the controversy kind of stems back to, all the way back to 1998, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Can you update us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, so this controversy uh, started, I guess, in the late 1990s Mm -hmm. by a British GI physician. Um, He had published a paper with 12 patients, I believe, Mm -hmm. saying that there was a link with MMR and autism. And what's MMR? It's MMR, measles, mumps, rubella. Right. Um, and 12 patients is, as you know, because you're in research, that's a really um, small population yeah. size. Normally, you need thousands and thousands of right. people to make a good, definite conclusion. Um, and they ended up doing tons of studies on autism and vaccine shortly after the paper was published. And mm. the paper ended up getting... Um, contracted from the journal they published it in. Yeah, so it was published in The Lancet, which is actually a really big journal in the world of autism. Mm -hmm. And long story short, they pulled that article. They, Mm -hmm. like, you know, (coughs) retracted it. And I think there were some concerns that the data wasn't even accurate. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I believe so as well. And I believe the physician who wrote the article lost their license in Mm -hmm. the U.K. Mm -hmm. because the data was... Um, potentially falsified. So, yes. nonetheless, the bell had been rung, yes, right? Yeah. And what have we seen in the 20-plus years since that article came out? Yeah, um, it's interesting that there's so many vaccines that young children get, such as DTaP, um, hepatitis B, that's a vaccine, mm-hmm. um, you know, infants get at birth. Yep. But people have been really focusing on the MMR vaccine, mm-hmm. specifically measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Yeah. Even though there's all these other vaccines out there, it's really this one people seem to be really focusing on. Yeah. Um, and what we've seen is, you know, in the last year, um, measles outbreaks are at an yes. all-time high here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is scary. Yeah, because of people not vaccinating their children. Yeah, and for the audience, where there have been outbreaks not only in the United States, but also in um, Europe, in Italy, and in Greece. And it's very scary because unvaccinated individuals can get uh, mostly um pneumonia is the most common mm-hmm. you know comorbid condition and it can be life-threatening or even fatal it's mm-hmm. very scary to think about it and there's been big outbreaks mm-hmm. in new york and the new york um health department actually mandates uh, vaccination for measles mumps and rubella now don't they yeah they do yeah they do um and it kind of leads me to, to think back um to before we had successful vaccines um you know, I obviously wasn't around back then, but in the 20s and 30s and 40s, people were contracting polio in swimming pools, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of fear out there. We, uh, in the United States, had a president, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, uh, believe it or not, um, was not able to walk because of polio that mm-hmm. he you know, suffered as a child, and uh, he could stand at a podium and was able to mask it, but he had to be carried to and from places. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, fast forward. You know, half a century, 60, 70 years later, and we've, as a field of medicine, have done such a good job of wiping out 
many of these illnesses that frankly killed millions of people that there's not the same fear anymore, Mm -hmm. is there? Yeah, because parents didn't grow up with the fear of polio or the Mm -hmm. fear of a lot of these illnesses. So it's hard for them to really comprehend the full extent of um, what would happen if one of their children got one of these um, illnesses. Exactly, and and the concept of herd immunity um, is huge because if there's one person who's not vaccinated, but then there's 10,000 people who are, well, they're going to be safe Mm -hmm. because everyone around them has been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. But once you start accumulating a few more and a few more people without the vaccination, all of a sudden you can have an epidemic breakout. Mm -hmm. Um, Makes me think of the military because um, in our immunology classes in medical school, we learned that the military vaccinates the heck out of all their you know, soldiers and so forth, because they want to make sure that there's not an outbreak. You know, they're in close quarters. For instance, if you're on a ship, you know, you want everyone vaccinated because you can't have an outbreak of, of measles, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, so that's a great example of how he- herd immunity works. Um, if, you know, the flip side of that is if we stop, it takes a little while, but eventually you have these outbreaks, mm-hmm. so it's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so has there, so there was this, you know, concern, kind of this alarm about the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine um, causing autism. And then since then, there's been a lot of work in medicine Mm -hmm. to try to see if it's really Mm -hmm. a risk. Yeah. And what have they found? They found that there's no link with autism and vaccines. Yeah. And I was reading up for this podcast. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of papers Mm -hmm. in the medical literature Mm -hmm. showing Mm -hmm. that um, vaccines do not cause Mm -hmm. autism. You know, Mm -hmm. so despite the outcry, you know, as providers, we really have to hold the line that vaccines are still yeah. one of the best ways to keep mm-hmm. your child healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is probably a good question for you since um, autism is your specialty, is uh, a lot of parents are getting the MMR vaccine and then shortly after their kids are getting screened for autism. Do you think that might be um, a reason why people are getting or thinking that there's a causation between the two? Definitely, definitely. So. Um, around the time kids are getting loads of vaccinations, people are either discovering that their child has autism or they're reporting that their child has a regression of milestones. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, they may have been walking great mm-hmm. and then at, at 12 months or 18 months and then by 24, 36 months, their walking has deteriorated. Mm-hmm. Um, that may just be the natural course of autism because mm-hmm. unfortunately about a third of cases of autism show a regressive pattern. So mm-hmm. loss of developmental milestones. So it is unfortunate that, you know, as these developmental milestones are being hit and then sometimes lost, Mm -hmm. that's occurring right around the time of the vaccination. So Mm -hmm. it's really, um, you know, problematic. I think it's created a lot of clouding of the facts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Do you think we need to push back the screening or um, maybe change when the patients are getting their MMR vaccine so the parents aren't correlating the two, thinking they got the vaccine, then they get screened for autism and the parent thinks... It was the vaccine. Yeah, I think it can definitely feed into that yeah. kind of fear. You know, um, the pediatricians are on the front line, and mm-hmm. um, I think they've done a great job of catching autism earlier and earlier, which mm-hmm. is important, and also done a great job of educating their parents about the importance of vaccines. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a tough line to walk because once a parent believes mm-hmm. that vaccines have caused, um, you know, autism, I, I would never argue that with a parent mm-hmm. because that's that's their experience and this mm-hmm. this again gets into the idea of what's what's good for one child mm-hmm. versus what's good for a population mm-hmm. those may or may not be the same thing so mm-hmm. parents ultimately have to make that decision for themselves mm-hmm. um, 
And again, you look at the military, that's a population. You got to do, you have to do things a certain way. But then when you're talking about an individual, you know, really the parents are the decision makers. Mm -hmm. So it is still a very tough and sensitive topic. Yeah, for sure. And um, we've had such an increase in autism over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. I think mm -hmm. one in 59 children now That's right. um, will be diagnosed with autism. What do you think um, has caused this increase? So the standard answer is it's a combination of genetic factors mm -hmm. as well as environmental factors. And environmental factors can mean a lot of things, but you know, mostly they're looking at environmental factors like um, medical conditions that occur in the context of autism. So I'll give you an example. Um, you could have a normal pregnancy that's going along great, and certainly the genetic risk in that pregnancy is the same throughout the pregnancy because the parents don't change. Um, but certain events can happen during pregnancy like an infection or blood loss or a complication during birth. Um, high levels of bilirubin, which is um, a byproduct of the liver, and things like that, un unanticipated complications in birth or pregnancy can be associated with higher rates of autism. So that's what we call like an environmental factor. Um, there are other more external factors like things like pesticides and air pollutions that people are investigating thoroughly. And, and there may be some risk there, but it hasn't really uh, been proven and ready for prime time. Um, now, going back to the genetic factor, um, a couple thoughts there. One is that we all carry a set of genes, and certain genes have been identified as more common in individuals with autism. Um, so they're looking at hundreds to thousands of genes, and certainly if, um, if you have more copies of, of genes that are sus suspected to cause autism, you're at higher risk. I'm not a geneticist, so I'm you know, describing a very rudimentary understanding. Um, but there's also another factor, a recent article came out, talking about assortative mating. And this gets the idea of, is autism more common in Silicon Valley? Is it more common in places where there's lots of scientists? Because um, patients with autism can sometimes appear to be very scientific, very interested in technology. Um, and these days, uh, well, you know, many people who go to school, for instance, they'll marry people they went to school with. Um, so back in the 1800s, you're more likely to marry somebody who's in your village or in your town. They may be two doors down, but they just geographically have similarities. Um, nowadays, we select out, which means, you know, I may come from, you know, Pennsylvania and uh, my wife may come from Virginia, um, which is far away, but we met in school. And we both, you know, have a career in medicine. We're both professionals. So you start selecting out and saying, hey, the, the potential mates there are getting smaller and smaller. Um, that selection process may contribute to the uptick in autism. So um, there, have, there were some unpublished and published data um, accumulated by Dr. Simon Baron Cohen, Cohen looking at um, children of MIT professors, children of workers in the Silicon Valley of the Netherlands and finding higher rates of autism. So there is a little bit about who your parents are and are parents with higher genetic risk marrying each other and having kids more commonly. So I know that was a long answer to your question. It's a complicated topic, but there's a lot there in terms of genetics and autism. Yeah, well, thank you for that. 
thorough explanation. <laughs> um, and I think there's also a lot of misinformation out there on autism. When mm-hmm. a lot of people think of autism, they think of someone that's nonverbal or needing special needs classes, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? That's right. So um, many, in fact, the majority of patients with autism do not have intellectual disability. And um, I think out there, the the stigma, unfortunately, is that intellectual disability and autism are one and the same. And that's not true. Um, you know, it happens that the group of uh, patients we treat at the Autism News Network are, you know, what you would call high functioning or their cognitive abilities are fully intact. Um, their verbal skills are there. They definitely have challenges um, and we play to their strengths and we try to develop and strengthen their weaknesses. Um, but yeah, I think in general, the group of population of autism um, patients is, is much higher functioning than maybe we're willing to give them credit for. Yeah. And what percent of patients would you say that are autistic are actually nonverbal? Because that's what a lot of people um, assume autism is. Well, the rate of intellectual disability is about 40%. Um, and you know, those who are nonverbal is probably a subset. I actually don't know the exact data, but I, I would figure it would be along the lines of 5 to 15%. It would be very uh, limited, the, the vast minority. Gotcha. I gotcha. Well, thank you for that thorough explanation, Dr. Bennett. Sure, Dr. Evelyn. <laughs> Anything else we forgot to cover? Well, I just wanted to uh, to thank you for coming on today. Um, you know, we're going to continue working with our group of patients, and uh, we have been, I think, blessed to work with a group of adults with autism who are, um, you know, just very talented, very focused, very determined, and they're going to continue to bring the story of autism to the masses um, through our our content creation and it's always going to be told from their viewpoint. So I appreciate the audience's uh, participation and listening, and I really thank you for all your efforts. And uh, we'll see you next time here on the Autism News Network podcast.